I have uh, challenged you with reading through the book of Jeremiah. Now, I know Jeremiah is a very difficult book to read through, but I think as you study through Jeremiah and look through Jeremiah, I suggest a chronological Bible would be helpful for you. But as you go through Jeremiah, you're going to see Jeremiah is really the anchor for what we know to be the last half of the Old Testament. It's really the anchor uh, source. You'll see around that is Ezekiel and uh, Habakkuk, and we'll see, you can see all of the, the prophets surrounding uh, Jeremiah, including uh, great prophecies of Daniel. Uh, Daniel, I mean, Jeremiah is really that hinge pen, if you would, of all the latter half of Old Testament prophecy. And as we look at this, we'll, it'll help us to fix our minds on just exactly what was going on. Now, Jeremiah does not follow a chronological order. That's why I mentioned um, to perhaps invest in a chronological Bible. I think it would be very helpful for you, even in, to the reading of the New Testament as well, but especially the Old Testament. I want to look at a little bit of history. The minute I say that, oh, history. Well, for those of you who want to, you can fall asleep right now, and I will wake you up in a special way at the end. Uh, but we want to go through a little bit of history concerning Jeremiah's, the kings of Jeremiah's day. Now, there were several. And it's particularly important that we see these kings and understand that Jeremiah is ministering through these several kings, and things are getting worse and worse. They're not getting any better. The first king that we're going to see together, and we'll be looking at this in the Chronicles and in the Kings itself, as well as some of Jeremiah. The first king we're going to look at is Josiah. Josiah. The kings of Judah in the days of Jeremiah. Josiah was the king. Now, all of these are Josiah's sons. All of these men are Josiah's sons. But Josiah, and some of them had different mothers, by the way, but their father was all Josiah. Some of them, we could start off, for example, let's say it, it begins with the, the might of the nation coming back to a place of preeminence, and then it starts to fall apart after that. I want to be careful, but this, if you would, is the Ronald Reagan of Jeremiah's day. And from then on, it begins falling apart. It begins tumbling down in many, many ways. So Josiah is the first king. Now, Josiah is not a spotless man. He's not a, a completely godly man, but he does want to accomplish God's will. He is looking to, uh, <clears throat> to honor the Lord. And what's interesting about this man is he is very positive, uh, reassembling the temple, taking down all of the high places, uh, chasing out Baal worship, and yet, as positive as his ministry is, that's how fruitless it is. It just is absolutely fruitless. Josiah is mentioned in Jeremiah's chapters 1 through 6, and then 11 through 12. In between there, we're going to see the next king. But, uh, so we have Josiah right at the beginning, and you, of course you could read that in the book of Jeremiah chapter 1 and in the first few passages. But what happened to the people? Why was not these reforms? Why did they not come back? Why did they not uh, totally turn their lives over to the Lord? Turn with me just very quickly to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. It's because their outward appearance changed. It was forced to change. They had to change. 
because Josiah was on the throne and Josiah himself uh, would execute people who would not follow Jehovah God. So outwardly, they had to change, but their heart never changed. And so there was a good leader on the throne and prophets round about him, but at the same time, the people were only restricted from doing that which they desired to do, and that was evil. When Jeremiah chapter 13, look at verse 23 with me for a moment, starting in verse 23. Uh, well, let's back up to 22. And if thou shalt say in thine heart, why come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts uncovered and thy heels made bare. Essentially, God said, I'm going to expose you to the world round about you. And the people would say, well, why has this happened? Why should such a thing come upon me? And God says, because of the iniquity of your heart. Pick it up in verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. You see, evil was in their hearts. And though for a time they were restrained, it was still there, it was beneath the surface, so that they could not do what they wanted to. And once Josiah left the scene, then they began to do what they wanted to do. And we're going to see that in the Kings. So join with me, if you would, just a little bit of biblical history. And we want to see how this great man of God, and truly he was a great man of God, one of my heroes of the Old Testament, how this great man of God had to deal with and minister under the kings that God allowed to be on the throne in the time of Judah. We'll be looking at overhead projections. I want you to know that, notice that they did not blink or shut off. <laughs> no one had to run over and fix anything. There it is, just for you. Okay, let's go. Second Chronicles chapter 35. In 2 Chronicles 35, we have something just absolutely fascinating, at least it's fascinating to me, and that Josiah is on the throne, and Judah is under a, uh, what's the best way to put it, I guess? They're under a, a, um, a crumbling uh, Assyrian empire. The Assyrian empire is falling apart, and we'll see this in just a moment. But Israel has to pay tribute to the Assyrian Empire because remember the northern tribes went into captivity to the Assyrians and the southern tribes began paying the Assyrians money to leave them alone. So the Assyrians said, fine, that's good. We'll just kind of leave you alone if you, as long as your money keeps coming. And so Josiah is under a tribute to the, this um, Assyrian Empire and he's under some kind of NATO-type alliance with them. And what happens is he gets word Josiah gets word that Pharaoh Necho is moving against who he thinks are the Assyrians. Now, let me show you that, please, on a, an overhead projection. Josiah is here in the southern part of Jerusalem. And here are the Egyptians. And Pharaoh Necho leaves, and it is presumed that he went by sea. Pharaoh Necho leaves uh, Egypt and he heads up here and he's going to fight in this area with the Assyrians and the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And this is Karshemash here. Karshemash right in this area. He's going up there to battle. Well Josiah gets word of this. Now remember he's in league. He has to go and help 
uh, Pharaoh Nico, I mean, he has to go and help the Assyrians, uh, whether he likes it or not, essentially. He's bound to do that because of the NATO-type alliance that they have. And so he begins moving troops northward from uh, Jerusalem. He moves northward all the way up into this area right in here that we would know to be Armageddon, Megiddo, in, in this area. He begins moving uh, troops up into that area. Why? Because he's received a call of some sort from the Assyrians, a runner, that says that we need your help. Now, this is where it becomes a little fuzzy biblically, only because we're not sure why Nico was headed that way. Was Nico headed that way to fight against the Babylonians who were fighting against the Assyrians? Was Nico trying to stop the Babylonians from coming closer? Or was Nico trying to destroy the Assyrians while they were weak because then he was going to face the Babylonians? We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that he's heads for uh, Karchemash, and he's going to fight there. And again, Josiah thinks he's going against the Assyrians, and I have to help the Assyrians. So we're in chapter 35. Remember where Jeremiah is. Now, Jeremiah's at home. Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. Jeremiah's prophesying in Jerusalem. And we're in 35. Let's pick it up, if we could, right in verse 20. And after all this went Josiah, and, and uh, when Josiah had prepared the temple, that Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against, to fight against Karchemash by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. So Nico's headed this way, I mentioned, apparently by ship. Maybe some of his troops went along the border. We do not know that. But he's headed up this way, and Josiah gets word, and Josiah says, I've got to stop Nico before he destroys the Assyrians. And we see that in verse 21. But he sent messengers unto him. That is, Nico sent, sent messages unto him. And this is so interesting. And he said, what have I to do with thee? Thou king of Judah. So Nico sends a message back. Listen, why are you getting involved in this? What do I have to do with you, king of Judah? And this is where it gets so puzzling in, uh, in verse 21. I've come not against thee this day, but against the house, house which, which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God who was with me, that he destroy thee not. You see that? He said, Nico said, God sent me to do this. God commissioned me to go against the Babylonians. Follow on a little further. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Nico from the mouth of God. And he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. God supernaturally was using Nico to tell Josiah to stay away. That's amazing, is it not? Here's a, an abomination of a man, Pharaoh Nico, the epitome of wickedness, and yet God speaks through Nico to warn Josiah, you stay home. You stay home. This has nothing to do with you. Now, why? Why is that? Well, remember, please, if you went into the book of Daniel, you'd see all the aspects of this. What, what's going on? God says the first and only world empire will be who? The Babylonians, the head of gold. Josiah, you stay out of this. I'm setting up a kingdom. 
I'm going to set up a man to sit on the throne whom I have picked out, and that man is Nebuchadnezzar himself. So the battle now, uh, Josiah goes up and he meets in this particular area, right up here, in what we would know to be the area of Megiddo. Remember, that's where the great battle of Armageddon is going to take place there in the tribu great tribulation period prior, of course, to the millennial kingdom being set up. So God says, uh, stay away, Josiah, through Nico. Josiah says, I'm going to go. And he, he sort of hid himself. Remember that? He disguised himself. We have something similar to that with Ahab and Jehoshaphat. He tries to hide himself. However, the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said unto his servant, take me away, for I am severely wounded. So apparently... One of the arrows uh, permeated his armor, sunk deep, and he said, I'm gravely wounded. Get me out of here. In verse 24, and his servants took him out of that chariot and put him in a second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried with one of the, in one of the sepulchres of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned Josiah. So Josiah... Now, is wounded in battle in Armageddon, and the people bring him back to Jerusalem, a 20 to 25 mile run, bring him all the way back to Jerusalem, and there he died, uh, probably a, a, a DOA type situation. He dies there, and of course, Jerusalem mourns after this great man of God, a wonderful man of God, by the way. And notice in verse, pick it up in verse. Uh, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to that which was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So Josiah comes back gravely wounded and dies shortly thereafter or might have died actually on the way there. It's so interesting that for whatever reason, Josiah went to battle. And for whatever reason, he wouldn't listen to Nico. Maybe he thought, you know, I'm not listening to... Which God are you talking about that wants me to stay out of this battle? He felt compelled. He did not heed the warning. And he was killed in a battle. So Israel now, Judah, is without a king. And something very interesting, notice if you would please in verse uh, 4 of chapter 36. Well, let's pick back up to chapter 36, 2 Chronicles 36. Now remember, who's in the land of Judah and who's preaching? Jeremiah. And here's a godly king on the throne, and, and Jeremiah knows that, and Jeremiah is, okay, things are somewhat calm here. If I can only get the people to repent, Josiah wants this to work out. Josiah wants to honor the Lord. And now Josiah is dead. And what happens next? Pick it up in verse, uh, thir uh, chapter 36 and verse 1. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's stead in Jerusalem. Now, Jehoahaz was a younger of the brothers. He did not belong on the throne. Who made him king? The popular vote. The people. And you know, often the people want stuff that's not good for them. Do you ever notice that? You've had children? What do they want? 
mostly the stuff that isn't good for them. You're an adult. What do you want? Often, the stuff that isn't good for you. The people uh, voted in Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king. And notice in verse 2, Jehoahaz was 20 and 3 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. So he's reigning three months. He's on the throne. Now, where's Nico? Nico has continued on up, and he's at uh, Karchemash up in here, and he's fighting apparently with the Assyrians against the Babylonians. Again, we're not exactly sure about that, biblically speaking. If you've had this history and secular history, just kind of let me know exactly. But biblically speaking, we're not exactly sure what went on. But apparently, Nico went up to help the Assyrians against the Babylonians because he knew the Babylonians, a great empire, are going to try and take over the known world. Up here, the battle's going on. Down here, a new king is, is, uh, is crowned. But Nico has a problem with this guy. And apparently, Nico gets word that this new king, Jehoahaz, is um, not what he's supposed to be. Now, you may ask a question, and I, and I ask this as I go through. We have all these kings. We have all these kings in... Um, in Israel, here's the father. These are all the sons. Why did Nico make this guy king? Why did uh, Nebuchadnezzar make this guy king? When he replaced that guy, why did he make this guy king? And they're all the sons. They're all in uh, succession here. Why, why would uh, the, the enemy kings make, uh, make the entire family kings in Judah? Well, Judah was somewhat insignificant to begin with, so it wasn't as if they were a huge country with a lot of soldiers that could fight huge battles and take over these major nations. But to, to uh, be just a little clearer, and I, I found this interesting in one of the commentators, his estimation was because these kings knew that the kings that conquered Judah, they knew that these sons would keep the people in line. That's interesting, huh? And you know, that, that in, in a microcosm of that, that happened to us, did it not? When we took Iraq, we didn't set up anyone to take over that was heavy-handed. Why? Because we wanted to make it a democracy. That didn't work so well. When we were assisting in Libya and Gaddafi was no longer there, what happened there? Uh, no, there was no succession set up that would be able to keep the people in hand. And this commentator mentioned that. Whether that's true or not, exactly, I don't know that, but I can see that. I could see that going on. So they wanted someone who was in the know, someone who was intelligent enough to run the country. But remember, uh, Nico did not put uh, Jehoahaz in this position. As a matter of fact, he didn't want him there. And we see that, again, picking it up in verse 4 of uh, 2 Chronicles 36. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother. Uh, well, let's back up to verse th uh, 3, if you would. Uh, 2 Chronicles 36, 3. And the king of Egypt disposed him, or literally took him out of office, um, and fined the land a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So um, 
because the people had rebelled against Nico and setting up Jehoahaz, what Nico said is, okay, I'm gonna, I want to put someone else in, in charge here. I want to put your brother in charge here. And we'll see that um, in just a second. But not only that, I'm going to fine you, so you have to pay tribute to me, uh, a yearly tribute. And that was like three and three-quarter tons of gold and about 100 uh, pounds or better, uh, three and a half tons of silver, rather, and about 100 pounds of gold that he was taxing the people. And he, he pulls Jehoahaz out after three months. So Jehoahaz just has a little bit of time here. But he was not a great man of God either. And we can see that as we travel through the book of Jeremiah. But what happens is Eliakim, pick it up in, in 36 and verse 4, and the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and charged his name, changed his name rather to Jehoiakim. And Nico took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him into Egypt. And Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did that was, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we have now a new king set up, and just picture Jeremiah. Jeremiah's at home, and he's preaching. Josiah comes back, and he dies. Oh, no. They put the youngest brother, he's the worst of the bunch probably, and they put him as king, but he only lasts 11 months. And now Nico comes in, begins taxing the people who are already strung out to begin with, begins taxing the people more, and he sets up the next in line, which it was Eliakim, or his name was changed to Jehoiakim. Now what's interesting about these names is when he sets up and makes uh, uh, Eliakim this, um, this king there and changes his name, he really is changing his name to a God-oriented name. God will provide, God will save. And he uses all these names, and this is Nico, and he's speaking prophetically, if you would, by the hand of the Lord. He's speaking prophetically, and yet... Jehoiakim is going to face some terrible, terrible times. Now, he is uh, 11 years on the throne, and we see that in the book of 2 Chronicles, again in verse 5. He's 11 years on the throne, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but also evil in the sight of Nebuchadnezzar. So partway through his 11 years, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Now, it's interesting because we have Nico headed south. Let me get back to our, one of our maps here. Karchimash up here. It's on the northern part of, we know, the Euphrates River. Nico now is headed south. And why is he headed south? Because the Babylonians had a great victory. They fought here. And this battle, this, uh, battle lasted four years. It's quite a battle up there. But it lasted four years, and the Babylonians were victorious. And so the Babylonians now are headed south. And Nebuchadnezzar is coming south, and Nico's headed south. He wants to get away from the Babylonians as fast as he can. And as the Babylonians come south, 
Nico, remember they're paying tribute to Nico, Judah was, and now all of a sudden here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Now again, biblically speaking, it gets a little fuzzy as you're reading down through these things because we only know of um, two different occasions recorded in Scripture when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the capital city over. <coughs> However, if you'll look at and compare all the, the, the synoptics here, the Chronicles and the Kings, and, and uh, along with Ezekiel, if you'll compare these, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar came at least three times and maybe four. And this is one of the times that Nebuchadnezzar came down. So we have uh, this Eli uh, Eliakim or Jehoiakim, he's on the throne, and he is not a godly man at all. As a matter of fact, he was one of the men that despised the word of the Lord. Where do I want you to go? Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah is pleading with the king, and the Lord has Jeremiah write scripture for a Jehoiakim. He has him writing some scripture. And it's interesting, when, uh, when Nico changed his name from um, the God of the Rising, Eliakim, he changed his name to the, uh, the one to whom God will repay. Whoa. <laughs> God's going to repay you for your wickedness, essentially. Now, we're in Jeremiah chapter 36. Look with me, please, right at verse 1. Jeremiah 36, 1. And it came to pass that in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying. So God says, I want you, in verse 2, to take a scroll of a book and write in it all the words that have been spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spoke unto thee, even from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. I want you to record everything I told you over 15 years of history. Could you do that? What if Nancy said to me, I want you to write down everything that you ever said to me in our first 15 years of marriage. Did I promise you something that I, uh, you know. <laughs> could you remember any of that? Could you, could you possibly? But see, not in your flesh. But this is scripture. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to remember everything. Isn't that what Jesus told the disciples? You, you will remember everything I told you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when the day comes. Don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about it. So, Jehoiakim now, I'm sorry, uh, Jeremiah has a secretary. and His name is Baruch. Baruch. And Baruch... Verse 2, take the scroll of a book and write it in all the words that have spoken against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke even unto thee, from the days of Josiah even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, and that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Did you see that? Right to the end God's offering mercy. Right to the very end he's offering blessing. Right to the very end he's offering restoration. 
He's offering salvation. This is physical and literal, obviously, because of Nebuchadnezzar coming. But right to the end, God is offering salvation. And we know that's true of us today, is it not? Not necessarily in a physical sense for us, but in a spiritual and literal sense for those who know not the Lord Jesus Christ. Right to the last breath, God offers repentance. He offers salvation. He offers restoration. He offers a spirit, but men reject that, right? Some of them right to the end, and then, of course, they pay that price. But God is offering, and pick it up in verse 4, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a scroll of a book. So Jeremiah now wants Baruch to to take this message and to read it throughout the southern kingdom of Judah. Look at verse 22, if you would. Baruch has done that, and the message comes to the king. He said, wait, there's a guy out there, and he's saying he speaks for Jeremiah. And by the way, Jeremiah is well known to all these people. He says he speaks for Jeremiah, and he wrote something in a book, and he gave it to me to give to you. Now, again, this is Jehoiakim picking it up in uh, verse 22. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. Uh, Probably, most likely, this would have been down in the south, down in the southern part of the Dead Sea. The summer house, of course, was up in Jerusalem, which was right here, but about 20 miles south, it's arid and dry in the winter months. Jerusalem can be very cold and can be snowy and rainy in the winter months. So the king moved to the winter palace down in the south, probably somewhere down near the Dead Sea area. And he's sitting there, and there's a fire going because it's, it could be cool down there. And what happened? Verse, now, verse 22, And now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass when uh, Jeudiah, or Dai, had read uh, three or four columns, he cut with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed, consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So every time his, his spokesman reads what Jeremiah, what Baruch wrote through the inspiration of Jeremiah, every time he reads a column, Remember uh, the, uh, the Jewish writings don't go from right to left, but from left to right, and they wrote in columns. So every time he wrote a paragraph, here's a paragraph here, uh, um, the king, Jehoiakim, would cut that off, roll it up, and throw it in the fire. Just an utter disdain for the word of God. An utter disdain for the word of God. So he just cut it up, and he threw it in the fire. Verse 24, and yet they were not afraid nor tore their garments, neither king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Notice the word of God had no effect on them. The word of God had no effect. They had hardened their hearts to such a place that none of this scared them. None of it. Let, let me ask you this. I, I have to ask it of myself every once in a while. When I'm reading along in the scriptures, and it may not be anything necessarily that I'm, I'm planning on, but I'm reading. I'm doing my reading in the scriptures. I read through several books of the Bible at, at a time, and I just kind of keep 
a little journal for myself in my own mind, but I'm reading along and all of a sudden, whoa, I do that. Whoa, that's, that's in my mind. <laughs> I don't do that. And as I'm reading the word of God, it convicts me of sin and righteousness and judgment. I know one day I'm going to stand before the king and give account for the things done on my body. I know that. The scriptures are plain on that. And I recognize as I'm reading through this, the spirit of God is using the word of God to convict me. What about these men? Well, it didn't bother them. It didn't bother them a bit. Is it possible to harden your heart so much that the word of God has no effect? I don't think so today. And the reason I don't think so is because the Spirit of God gives everyone opportunity till the minute they die. So God's word is always alive. It's always active. But that doesn't mean people will listen to it. But these men had ceased listening to God's word. It didn't bother them. He didn't care about it a bit. They just kept going on. So the scroll was cut up, burnt, by uh, Jehoiakim. He did not care. Uh, unless you're worried about the scroll, God had Baruch uh, rewrite the thing in verses 27 and following. So don't worry about that. But the scroll, the scroll, scroll, the scroll was replaced, and now it was replaced with further words that destruction is inevitable. Destruction is now inevitable. It's interesting, about this time, our good friend Habakkuk is in the walls of Jerusalem looking around saying, what in the world is going on, God? The Assyrians are on the way. I mean, the Chaldeans, they're on the way. They're, they're, they're coming. God, how can you punish? These people deserve to be punished, but how can you punish these people with those people? How can this be? How can all this come to pass? How could this ever be? And of course, you know the book of Habakkuk very well, and God is letting him know, I'm, I'm going to judge. I said I would, and I'm going to judge. And so Jehoiakim now is on the throne, and Nebuchadnezzar comes, and this apparently is where he took the best of the best. This is where he came in in his first sweep through, so remember, Jehoiakim was partly under Pharaoh Necho, who is, who is now headed back to Egypt. He's running for all he's got back to Egypt. And he leaves Judah right here. So there's no more covenant. Uh, I don't care about you folks. Uh, uh, I'm headed out of here. Keep, keep the change, by the way. I'm going back to Egypt because Nebuchadnezzar is headed south. And as Nebuchadnezzar comes, he begins the process of taking over uh, Jerusalem. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles again. 2 Chronicles. And the history lesson is almost over, so I'll wake you up in a moment now. Uh, head with me to 2 Chronicles again. We're in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And I want you to notice, please, starting in verse 5. 2 Chronicles 36, 5. And Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Against him came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Now, again, the history behind this gets a little fuzzy, and, and uh, 
My desk, it's even there now. You can look in the window. Don't go in, but look in the window because I have a mess. All. My desk is piled with these books, and I'm trying to figure out what happened to this guy. Where did he go? How come he leaves the pages of history? How come we don't know anything about him? Well, uh, Jehoiakim was bound by uh, Nebuchadnezzar to be brought to Babylon, but apparently he never made it there. Apparently he was... Uh, either killed, uh, murdered, or, or died uh, somewhere along uh, the line, and he never made it to Babylon. He was buried, and we'll see a little later on, outside the gates of, of Jerusalem. And just like a common criminal, like uh, they said, like, like you would bury an ass, a donkey, outside of the, the walls in probably what we know to be uh, Gehenna, the Valley of Death there. But Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and this is where he takes the first of the captives, verse 8. Well, let's pick it up in verse 7. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. These were the vessels, of course, that we read about in the book of Daniel. Now, my Bible, and I have a Schofield Bible, I'm a Christian, so I have a King James Schofield Bible here. But um, the heading on my Bible in a couple places says this was Nebuchadnezzar's first deportation of people. But it says that two or three different times. I, now, I, I'm not that smart, but I know it can't be the first one three different times. Uh, so they don't know either. And as I'm reading down through the scriptures and in, uh, in a lot of the commentaries, they don't know either. We're not exactly sure. Nebuchadnezzar came up at least three or four times, but we know that he, the first time he came, he took all the vessels out of the temple. These were all the vessels of gold and silver that, uh, that were used later on in a drunken orgy. Uh, but, uh, and we'll get to see that a little bit later on. But recognize uh, with this now, Daniel, and most likely Ezekiel, was taken during these times. Jeremiah had an option whether he wanted to go to Babylon or not, and he opted out. Imagine that. He opted out. Why? Because he wanted to stay with his people under this horrible mess that we're going to see as we continue on. Well, that's it for this part of the history. So those of you who fall asleep, wake up. It's time to go. We'll close with a word of prayer, and then we have a song together. Father, thank you for your revealed truth. Lord, as we look at these kings, we think of poor Jeremiah. Uh, we know, Lord, that you told him that he would appear before kings, and these kings would reject him, and that the priests would reject him, and the prophets would reject him, and, yea, even the people would reject him. And as he sees one bad king exchanged for another, as he sees one nation that's taking captive Judah for another. And as the spiral continues down, Father, we know this man remained faithful to your word. He was brokenhearted. He was tender. He was afraid at times, and yet he spoke the word of truth. Father, as we look around us, we pray you'd keep us tender. Help us, Lord, to... Uh, make sure that we speak the word of truth so people might hear of Christ and be saved. Father, as we look at this history, it 
it, it just marvels us that this man remains so faithful to you. Give us, Father, that strength, that spiritual strength in the inner man to remain faithful for you and to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.